Today's program is being recorded, so if you don't wish to be recorded, please um, just don't participate in Q&A. You can always send us an email afterwards, richard at ltccc.org, with any questions or comments or ideas for future programs. So again, uh, we're going to get started. This is Richard Mollett with the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. Today's program is on focus on care and outcomes pressure ulcers, and infection control and prevention. So I thought it would be interesting now that we're doing these programs on a monthly basis to have some programs that focus specifically on, um, on particular issues that are of concern that have been in the news that we hear about from families and from ombudsmen, from attorneys, and from, of course, um, residents as well. And today's focus is on pressure ulcers and infection control and prevention. Uh, for those of you who just joined us, the phones will be muted until the end. I will leave time for Q&A. You could also type in your question at the, uh, at the top of your screen. Sarah will be reading those at the end. Or again, you can get in touch with us. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the capacity to help with individual situations or problems. Uh, we are very interested, though. You can uh, please participate in our Tell My Story campaign on our website, www.nursinghome411.org. Uh, otherwise, we uh, welcome you to share this information uh, and resources, etc., with anyone uh, who you think might find it useful. Uh, before we get started, I also want to thank the New York State Health Foundation, which supported the development excuse me, of this program. So I always start off with a little bit about us for those of you who haven't joined us before and may not be familiar. Uh, Long-Term Care Community Coalition, LTCCC, we are a nonprofit organization. Uh, we're entirely dedicated to improving care, quality of life, and dignity for elderly and adult disabled residents in nursing homes and assisted living, adult homes, uh, other residential care settings. We focus on policy analysis and systems advocacy in New York State and nationally. And in recent years, we've been doing more and more work such as this, educating consumers and families, long-term care ombudsmen, attorneys, uh, other stakeholders about some of these issues. And the reason for that is because, uh, because some of the issues that we talk about, including the two issues that we'll speak about today, are so persistent and uh, and widespread and for, you know, affecting far too many residents in different types of facilities, uh, I thought that it would be useful to educate um, residents and families and those who work with them about what their rights are. And uh, I know that some of these issues can be extremely challenging for residents and those who work with them, but it's, you know, our position and our belief that if you don't know what your rights are, then they, there's no way to implement them. Uh, implementing them, realizing them is hard, it's challenging, but it will only happen if we uh, know what our rights are. We also are actually the home of the local long-term care Amazon program for the Hudson Valley. Our program director is not with us today. She is enjoying some warm weather in Hawaii. Uh, yay, Gloria. But uh, otherwise, um, we, um, which I'm very proud, I should say, excuse me, to have the local long-term care ombudsman program. We've worked with ombudsmen for many, many years in New York and across the country, and I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for the work the ombudsmen do. Uh, I joined LTCCC in 2002, and I've been the executive director since 2005. So what are we going to be talking about today? I'm going to provide a brief overview of the issues. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about infection control and prevention, as well as pressure ulcers. For both, we're going to talk a bit about the extent of the problem, give you some background on what they are. Some of you, you know, might be familiar with them, others less so. We're going to talk about the regulatory standards for each, and then some of the information that's available to you about what's going on in nursing homes whether it's your individual nursing home or those in your community or state, depending upon what level you may be thinking about these issues or working on them. And lastly, we're going to talk about some of the tools and resources that we have that can help support um, better understanding, advocacy, etc. Everything, as uh, those of you who have been with us before know, 
everything we have is free to use, to adapt, to share in your communities, with your colleagues, with your constituents, etc. We really want to make this information as useful to as many people as possible. So first I'm going to talk about infection control and prevention. Uh, it's one of the most serious problems facing nursing home residents. And here I just posted uh, two pictures of articles that uh, one of which on the left-hand side was by Jordan Rao. It was covered in Kaiser Health News, and I think this was the LA Times actually headline. Uh, infection lapses are rampant in nursing homes, but punishment is rare. Uh, and then the second one is a story that many of you might have heard about. It's a nursing home in my home state of New Jersey, the Wanakue Center, and they had uh, 11 deaths resulting from failures in basic, you know, infection control um, uh, protocols. As you can see here, it really comes down to not always, not always, not everything is so simple, but quite often it comes down to basic hygiene, cleanliness, wash your hands. I mean, we're talking about a, uh, a healthcare facility, we're talking about a very vulnerable population, and we, um, some of this stuff is just so basic. Wash your hands. Be aware of what's going on uh, when someone's providing care and clean up. Take care of yourself. Uh, just really simple, basic stuff. So why is this such a big problem? Well, despite strong regulatory requirements to protect residents from infection, to make sure that uh, linens are clean and cleaned on a regular basis to make sure that the environment and that the equipment used for residents is clean. Their uh, infection problems continue to be a leading cause of death and of sometimes really terrible suffering for nursing home residents. According to the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, this is a U.S. agency, there are 380,000 nursing home residents deaths per year due to healthcare-associated infections. I keep on having to recheck that number because it's just so astounding to me, even as a consumer advocate, that we have so many, so many of these problems and that it's so widespread. Uh, preventable reasons for the spread of infection include basically deficient nursing home practices, such as staff not washing their hands, staff not sterilizing equipment before providing resident care, or in between providing care from one resident to another. So again, I included the graphic here. It's kind of a silly one. Clean your hands. Just wash your hands. Soap and water. It's such a basic, basic thing, but too often we hear and we see that it's not being utilized. So I want to talk a little bit about the federal requirements for nursing homes. And these quotations are all from the federal regulations or from the federal guidelines for those regulations. Every nursing home is responsible for implementing an effective infection prevention and control program. They must have, and you can see here in quotes, it's not me saying this, this is what the federal government requires for to be in operation and functional uh, and effective every single day, day and night, weekends, holidays, etc. Every nursing home must have a system for preventing, identifying, reporting, investigating, and controlling infections and communicable diseases for all residents all staff, volunteers, visitors, and other people who come into the facility, you know, whether they're contract workers, etc. They must, in the second bullet here, develop written policies and procedures. So you can always see, you can, nursing homes have, have to have a written policy and a written procedure for surveilling, um, identifying when there's possible communicable, communicable excuse me, diseases or infections that could be spread within the facility, reporting uh, when and to whom possible incidents of communicable disease or infections should be reported. Uh, they should have a system for preventing spreading, a system for isolation, and importantly, we're talking about isolation of someone who could be contagious, who could be a risk to other residents. Importantly here, as I included from the CMS guidance, the isolation should be the least restrictive possible for the resident under the circumstances. So it is not acceptable if someone is has a contagious illness, for instance, and they're a nursing home resident, to lock them in a room 
and isolate them if that is not absolutely necessary to ensure the safety of that individual as well as other residents in the facility. So again, we talk about this a lot in our programs uh, because the regulations, the standards talk about it a lot, is that the facility, the facility staff are always required to be thinking about the resident, uh, the resident situation, what his or her needs are, what the needs are on an individual level of the other residents and be addressing their actions accordingly and direct to that. Not just a blanket, okay, someone has a cold, someone gets the flu, we put them in isolation, and the only one who ever sees them is the CNA who comes in in a mask uh, a few times a day to feed them, etc. cetera. Uh, that is not acceptable. Um, it always has to be tailored to the individual. And lastly, again, I just want to mention hand hygiene procedures because I've read a lot of these deficiencies, and that's why I keep on emphasizing it. A lot of it is just basic cleanliness. Wash your hands, things that we teach a four- or five-year-old to do. Uh, this is too often what we see not happening in nursing homes with, again, people who are uh, very vulnerable, very vulnerable to infections, very vulnerable to getting sick, etc., and where those precautions become even more essential than they do for those of us who are living in the community in everyday life, coming in and out of a bathroom at a supermarket or a Home Depot or whatever, uh, that we don't want to spread infections. Well, that becomes even more serious and even more important, obviously, for people in a nursing home, for residents, as well as workers, for that matter. And that's why these... these um, practices are so essential. So some of it, just to recap quickly, is really basic hand washing. And these are things we should expect to see. These are things that we do expect to see happening and to be happening. And then some of it is, you know, of course, resident-centered. It's that there is a resident who is sick, a resident who might be contagious, et cetera, that the, what goes on with that resident, whether they're isolated, et cetera, again, should be tailored to the resident, where he or she is living, where his or her needs are, etc. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the information that we have available for the public. Uh, unfortunately, the U.S. government does not publish information uh, that I think is very good in terms of the infection rates in nursing homes. They publish some very limited information that doesn't really get to the larger issue, and that's why, you know, we look back at the larger data about how many people are harmed, and we see hundreds of thousands of people uh, actually dying in nursing homes. We realize that it's a significant issue. We don't have a lot of the data, unfortunately, to bring that back for us, those of us who are working uh, maybe on a facility level or in a local um, program, a local advocacy program, local ombudsman program, or those of us who work on a state level to see, well, you know, these are some of the issues. Uh, that is a little bit harder to see when it comes to this issue of infection control and prevention. What we do have, however, and what I'm showing you here is LTCCC's website page. We download on a periodic basis, for those of you who, who have been to our website, we download different issues that are going on, different data that are available, and we put them in files to make them as easy to use as possible for the general public, for advocates, for family members, for policymakers, for attorneys, et cetera. So what you can see here is we have the U.S. Nursing Home Infection Control and Prevention Citations. These are where nursing homes have been cited for a deficient, a substandard practice related to infection control and prevention. This is as of the end of last year, the end of December 2018, and it's for three years. Um, so we include all the citations for the last three years as of the end of 2018. And again, we update, update this information periodically. But we give you a broad um, basis for seeing, well, you know, in the last couple of years, what has gone on in my facility or in the facility in my areas? So in my area, excuse me. So you can see on this next slide, this is a copy of the information that we have for the public. And it's the, um, for our home state, New York. And these are, again, are the deficiencies for the last three years related to a, having an effective uh, pressure ulcer, excuse me, sorry, infection control prevention uh, program. 
So here you can see on the left-hand side, it's their columns for provider name, provider address, provider city, provider zip code. So you can track, you can actually search for a facility by name uh, once you've downloaded the state file. Very easy to do from our website. You can search for your city. You can actually just pull out ones that are for your city or for your zip code. And you can see when they were cited, what the survey date was for the citation. So this information is really useful, especially if you're in a... Uh, you know, working in a nursing home, if you're an ombudsman or a family member or a resident, um, you can see what is going on in your nursing home. You could also see if you're working in a local program or doing state-level advocacy, well, what's going on in my state? You know, what, what are the citation rates? How do the citation rates compare to other states? And we do, we provide, and included here in this program, we, we, we provide and publish those data on an annual basis as well for, for this to see, well, what are states doing and how do they compare to one another? But here you can get a sense of what is going on, uh, again, in your state or in your community. One thing I wanted to point out before we move on is you'll see, for instance, if you look at uh, rows, if you can see the slide, rows 7, 8, and 9, those are all for one facility. It's Absolute Center for Nursing in Orchard Park, I believe that is, uh, in New York. They were cited three times in the last three years. So if you're looking at a facility, you can not only see, is my facility here, which would be cause of concern, but also has my facility been here more than once? And we see here, you know, several times, excuse me, I'm looking down, we have uh, on lines 16 and 17, the Auburn Rehab. This is, again, only a small snapshot of what, is, uh, what the New York file looks like. We have Batavia Health Center in Batavia, also cited a couple of times. That, to me, is a cause of concern. And as I note here at the bottom, quickly check out these data. Ask questions of the facility. What have they done to address these issues? Uh, and then be an educated consumer about it. Look and see what's going on. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, you know, so we have the standards that I talked about, and the standards are really strong. We have some of those citations, but as I, you know, as I said, citations unfortunately aren't everything, and that's because they're not very well implemented. And here's one example. It's from a report that was issued recently by the Center for Medicare Advocacy. There have been a number of reports actually in the news media about this nursing home. It's a Wanakee Center in New Jersey. Uh, Eleven children died. I think actually another one might have died since this report came out. There were numerous others that were permanently harmed for the rest of their lives as a result of this um, in infection problem that happened in the facility. The reason why I'm focusing on it here, the reason why I wanted to mention it to you, is that this nursing home had been cited several times before these children died for not meeting infection control standards. 2016, 2017, and 2018. Citation, citation, citation. What happened? Why was this facility cited, but nothing ever changed, or not enough change in that facility to ensure that those residents, uh, you know, those children were safe? And as we know here, as the sensor noted, all of these violations were cited as not causing any harm or immediate jeopardy to any resident. What that means when a facility is cited, when, when a substandard care or a dangerous condition is found, if a surveyor does not identify that there's been harm or that residents are put in immediate jeopardy, there's almost never any monetary penalty for the nursing home. And therefore, our concern as consumer advocates is that that sends a message to nursing homes and it sends a message to the nursing home industry that if you have a no-harm citation, you're not going to be penalized, and therefore you can continue doing business as usual. And I wasn't in this facility personally, so I can't uh, over these years, so I can't say for sure, but you see here, 6, 2016, 2017, 2018, cited again and again for not meeting infection control standards, but, you know, then it happens another time and, you know, and a dozen kids are dead. Um, what does that say about how our system is working? Uh, what does it say about what we can, how we can view and whether or not we can trust whether that system is working to protect us? So, 
you know, and I'll, I've said it a couple of times, and I'll say it again. You have that same graphic of the person, you know, the hands under the water, swooping hands under the water. This is what we should be seeing. Because enforcement isn't doing the job that it should be, we need to be looking at. We need to be seeing, are people using hand sanitizer? Are the facilities clean? Are, are the laundry services, uh, are they consistent? Are they adequate? Um, is, are people washing their hands? Are they taking care to change their gloves, etc.? while they're caring for a resident? If they're touching someone, uh, maybe who has an open wound, or helping them with a um, to clean them up, clean up, excuse me, if they've gone to the bathroom, and then providing medication to them. Are they changing their gloves? Are they washing their hands? Really basic things that we just, you know, I just want to trigger for you all to be aware of, to be thinking about. So as I've been saying, it's really valuable to know what's going on, to listen, uh, to watch, to smell, to see. Use your senses when you're in a nursing home to see what's going on. And then also we have some of this information that is uh, that is available for you. Uh, as I know here, we have information on staffing. So we don't have uh, information on the infection control excuse me, on the infection, actual infection rates for specific facilities, uh, which, you know, might be health, might have been helpful to have, but we don't have that. We have the information, as I just discussed, on the citation so you can easily see what is going on in the facility about which you're concerned, but you can also find other information on our website like staffing, uh, pressure ulcer rates, which we'll talk about next, antipsychotic drugging rates, other criteria uh, overall um, enforcement, overall star ratings that you can use as a basis for asking questions, for uh, assessing what is going on in the facility, and for making hopefully good choices about your care uh, and for those with whom you're working or for your loved ones. And then lastly, and we'll talk about this as well, and those of you who've been on prior programs around, no, no, excuse me, we have a lot of really, I think, very good, straightforward information on the standards of care that you could use to support your advocacy. And as I often say you know, when I do these programs or when I do a program in person for families or for ombudsmen, et cetera, that you don't have to memorize these things. I went back to our website, went back to the CMS website time and time again just when I was preparing this program. Um, you don't have to remember everything but you can remember to go to our website or go to Nursing Home Compare, go to some of the resources that we provide for you, um, you know, links on, to them on our website and in our materials, so that just, just to really, again, plug in, just to get a sense that you know what your rights are, you know what to expect, that there should be hand washing, that there should be cleanliness in terms of linens, there should be cleanliness in terms of the devices and the equipment that are used. Uh, these are just such serious issues that unfortunately are not often uh, or too often not taken seriously enough by facilities and by staff and even by surveyors. So I'm going to move on now to pressure ulcers and again we'll save the questions for the end of the program. So what are pressure ulcers? They're also called pressure sores, uh, cubitus ulcers. They have a, a lot of different names. They're essentially uh, damage that happens to a resident's skin and the tissue underlying that skin quite often from pressure. Um, they tend to happen in a place where there's a bone or bony pro prominence, like underneath a, um, a heel of a foot on an elbow in a resident's hip or buttocks is where um, pressure ulcers tend to happen when someone has been resting on that for a while and the skin, the pressure, uh, and the, the skin is not as, um, as healthy as it might be. The person may not be as mobile as they normally would. So those of you who are sitting at your desk, those of you who are, you know, sitting at a kitchen table, et cetera, you're probably moving around. You're probably shifting from one leg to another. Uh, you, you get up and you walk every once in a while, you get up to go to the bathroom. If you're a nursing home resident, you may not be able to do those things easily on your own. And if there's not enough help provided to you to make sure that you reposition, to make, to make sure that you get up uh, on a regular basis, that's when the pressure from you know, laying on, on, a, on a fragile skin can result in a pressure ulcer. 
They are, and I have a couple of things here about how big of a problem are pressure ulcers. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the U.S. agency, pressure ulcers are a serious medical condition and one of the most important measures of the quality of clinical care in nursing homes. That's not me as an advocate saying it. That's what the U.S. CDC says. A journal article that I found, the Journal of Wound Ostomy and Continence Care, states, while some pressure ulcers are unavoidable, research and experience indicate that, quote, in the vast majority of cases, appropriate identification and mitigation of risk factors can prevent or minimize pressure ulcer formation. Really, I, I just think these are some of the most important things that I can think of that I've learned over the years that, you know, too often we're told um, that these things happen or what happened quickly uh, or they didn't realize it happened. Pressure ulcers are such a serious problem. And as we see here as research, as even the government agencies have stated, they are almost always avoidable. They are almost always treatable. And as the CDC says, they are one of the most important measures of the quality of clinical care in a nursing home. Nevertheless, today, I looked at the data this morning to make sure I had the most current data, over 87,000 nursing home residents are suffering with identified pressure ulcers. Over 87,000 people as we're sitting here today. So I wanted to just briefly talk about what the federal requirements are specifically for pressure ulcers. This is, as those of you who have seen our handouts before and our um, fact sheets on, and of course our primer, which we just uh, have republished, our primer on nursing home standards, we always include a descriptive title, what the regulatory standard is. So here we're talking about skin integrity, but I also always include the Code of Federal Regulation, the CFR number, and that is not because you need to go look up the Code of Federal Regulation it's because you can see that we have already done that for you. So it's not just me saying this is what should be happening as a lawyer or as a consumer advocate. This is what the federal minimum standard under the law and under the regulation require. And they say that based on the comprehensive assessment of a resident, the facility must ensure that a resident receives care consistent with professional standards of practice to prevent pressure ulcers and does not develop pressure ulcers unless the individual clinical condition demonstrates that they were unavoidable. And that a resident with pressure ulcers receives necessary treatment and services consistent with professional standards of practice to, to promote healing, prevent infection, and prevent new ulcers from developing. So really important, the facility must not the facility can, not the facility should, not the facility if it feels like it, not the facility if it has enough staff. The facility must. The facility must do these things. And importantly, what I, uh, I think it's important that they cite here several times professional standards of practice. This is not something that too often the nursing industry will say, oh, these, you know, we have so many requirements, we have so many, they call them burdens, so many burdens that we have to deal with. Well, no. Um, these are professional standards of practice. You are operating a skilled nursing facility, um, and nursing homes are paid a lot of money to provide this care, and they can only take in a resident when they have assessed the resident and promised that they can provide the services, the level of care that he or she needs. Um, so these services must be consistent with professional standards of practice. And those are out there. Those are verifiable. When we talk to attorneys, when we talk to families, uh, when we talk to residents and their re other representatives, say professional standards of practice. We know what to expect. We know what is possible and what is possible is what is expected for our residents. I just wanted to also mention here, as you can see in kind of the orange box, I said, what does unavoidable mean? Because the regulations say um, that the care must be sufficient 
to prevent pressure ulcers unless they were unavoidable. So what does that mean? Because too often, you know, I hear, and I've been a family member myself as well as an advocate, oh, it was unavoidable. You know, this is just what happened. Well, according to the CMS, uh, the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, interpretive guidance, unavoidable means that a pressure ulcer formed even though the facility had evaluated the resident's clinical condition and risk factors, defined and implemented interventions that are consistent with resident needs, goals, and again, professional standards of practice, monitored and evaluated the impact of those interventions, interventions excuse me, and revised the approaches to that resident's care as appropriate. This just small amounts of the law and the guidance and the regulations of the guidance, excuse me, are, I think, so valuable and so important because these are, again, over 80,000 people in this country uh, and our nursing homes are suffering from pressure ulcers. It is such as, and I see it in hospitals, uh, I see it in other settings as well, um, professional standards of care. We're not talking about something that I made up. We're not talking about something that a, you know, someone is sitting in a government office someplace made up um, and, and just to be a burden to nursing homes, we are talking about professional standards of practice. Nursing homes are expected to be doing this. Uh, chances are your nursing home didn't open its doors yesterday. Uh, not that that would be an excuse, but we have nursing homes that have been in the business for years. They are required to know about this and to be implementing it for every single one of their residents. Lastly, in terms of federal requirements, I mean, I think this is really specific and really valuable. Again, this is from one of our fact sheets, so you can go to our website right now or after this program. You can take it with you. We'll send you copies, et cetera. Uh, let us know. But in addition to specific requirements around pressure ulcer care, uh, there are other regulatory standards that are important. Sufficient staffing, that the facilities conducting an appropriate assessment of the resident, of his or her needs, and of course developing a care plan based upon that assessment. That services that the facility provides meet professional standards of quality. Again, these are not things that I'm making up out of, out of my head because I think that they're a good thing or because I want to give nursing homes a hard time. These are what, this is exactly what nursing homes are being paid to do. Um, Residents, especially as they get older or have other, you know, uh, chronic conditions, become at risk for pressure ulcers. There is virtually never an excuse for these things to happen, and unfortunately, they happen too often. Not only do they happen, but they they become worse. They become exacerbated because the resident doesn't receive the appropriate care or interventions. All of this is expected. And again, just before we move on, I want to you know, I mention the first thing here under other regulatory standards, sufficient staffing. And I mentioned that earlier, even though we don't have, when I was talking about infection control and prevention, even though we don't have the rates of infection for uh, nursing homes, we do know their staffing rates. And staffing is key to all of these issues. Staffing is key to every facet of quality, including infection control and including pressure ulcers. Look at the staffing. So we have some, uh, we also have, excuse me, some information that we published, and we just published this today, this morning, on pressure ulcer citations. Same exact thing as what we did for infection control. It's the last three years, so it gives you a really broad picture of what the history of your facility is. I'm not trying to play gotcha, gotcha with this facility, gotcha with that facility, caught you on the bad day. No. We are talking about the last thousand or so days, thousand plus days, of what a facility has um, whether a facility not has been, whether a facility has been cited or not for pressure ulcer deficiencies, as you can see here, we have them in alphabetical order for every state. You can click on any one of these links and go directly to your state. And again, I'm using our state file as an example. You can look up by provider name. You can sort by provider name. You can sort by provider city. You can actually just pull out the ones for any city or multiple cities in which you're interested, same thing with zip codes, and you can see the citations here. And unfortunately, as I mentioned before, 
when we were talking about infection control and prevention, we have we see the same issue here. If you look at lines five, six, and seven, they're all the Beach Tree Center for Rehab in Ithaca, New York. Uh, so we have a facility that was cited three times uh, in, these, in this three-year period. That's a uh, cause of even more serious concern. But as I note here in the box on the left-hand side, you can easily look to see. So just go to our website, go to this page, click on it. You have the file. You can see uh, whether your facility has been cited. If it has been, ask them, what have they done to address, to address the problem? How have they implemented that in a consistent manner across the facility, daytime, nighttime, on weekends? These are things that family councils can work on. These are things that resident councils that can work on. These are things that ombudsmen and other advocates can work on to address in their facilities to be educated to know. And again, these are not things you have to memorize. I can't emphasize that enough, is that you can go to our website, nursinghome411.org. You can go to the federal website, medicare.gov forward slash nursinghomecompare to get some of the specific data for any nursing home. What we do is we go to the underlying database, I download it all, and we, we put it in these files to make it easier to use because the federal files will have every single deficiency you know, for every single, every single regulatory requirement for every single nursing home over the course of three years. So we break it down into specific files and then cut them out by state so you can go directly to your state and find out what's going on. Now, although we, as I mentioned, when we were talking about infection control, the federal government does not publish rates of infection, of infection, excuse me, for every nursing home. However, they do publish uh, unhealed pressure ulcer rates for every single nursing home. So what we did, and this again also just came out today, posted on our website, is that we download those data and we put them in a format that is as easy to use as possible for each individual state. So if you go to our website right now, you can click on nursing home pressure ulcer rates um, spring 2019 and then scroll down to your state and you can open up that, that file. And you can see, just as with the other data, the files are sorted by provider name, the name of the facility, the address, the city of the facility, the zip code, so you can pull out your zip code or you can pull out for your city. And then, and I put a big purple arrow here, you can, it also includes, excuse me, the percentage of high-risk, long-stay residents with pressure ulcers. Exactly the people that we have been talking about, that the CDC was talking about, that the professionals who wrote in that journal were talking about, how, what percentage of high-risk residents receive, uh, excuse me, have a pressure ulcer identified as having a pressure ulcer. And here I just sorted it actually from most to least. So this is only a clip of the top 24 or so facilities in New York, but you could do this for your, for your um, state as well or for New York if you're in our home state of New York. And you could see, uh, one, where does my facility show up? Where is it in terms of uh, other facilities in the area? How do I choose a facility? How do I advocate in my facility looking at what's going on. Like if I was in the resort nursing home in Auburn, New York, 29% pressure ulcer rate, well, what's going on? Um, and w what's happening here? Uh, I would want to be talking to the administrator and to the director of nursing. Uh, I would be uh, concerned with all of these. Anyone that you see here, these are all very high pressure ulcer rates. What is going on? Is there, is there a reason why the rates are so high. Uh, maybe there is, I mean, it's, uh, I'm not a, a clinician, it's hard for me to imagine uh, why they should be so high, but they, um, as the CDC says, it's a key indicator of the quality of clinical care in a nursing home, the pressure ulcer rate, but they're, um, you know, are there extenuating circumstances that, that make sense, that hold up to scrutiny? What is going on? Why are we seeing so many pressure ulcers in these facilities. And conversely, you can search, you can reverse that search, go from least to most, and you can see which nursing homes have very low pressure ulcer rates. And that's the thing that we should you know, say, well, it sounds like they're doing a good job. 
uh, it sounds like they're doing better. We should be you know, looking at that as well, and we should be identifying uh, and acknowledging, recognizing facilities that are doing a better job uh, because it's certainly possible, and there are certainly good providers out there that are committed to providing good care. Um, so this, this information, you know, works both ways. Again, similar to what I wrote before about the infection control, be aware of what's going on with your resident in your facility, in facilities in your community. Listen, watch, smell. Too often, you know, we talk to family members and they are afraid, you know, they, they want to give their resident privacy so they walk out of the room when a resident is being changed. Uh, they walk out of the room when, you know, the sheets are pulled away. Uh, unfortunately, it's really important to stay in the room. It's really, especially if you have a resident with dementia who may not be able to complain, who uh, may not be able to say that he or she has not received care, has not received the uh, care that he or she needs, has not been repositioned even. Uh, it's really important to be there to make sure to, you know, that you can identify, that you can see what is going on uh, if the resident is developing a pressure ulcer, some kind of uh, injury to their skin. And again, we have all this information on our website. Nothing you need to memorize. You can go, I'm going to go back up. You can easily go to our website, click on this right now on the front page, but we also have a whole page, a whole section dedicated to nursing home information. Or if you're concerned, gee, I'm concerned about pressure ulcers in my facility, at the bottom of our website, there's a little search function. Just type in pressure and all these things come up. The information comes up. Some of the resources that we're going to talk about come up as well. And I'm going to talk about some of those resources now. So here we have two handouts. We put together, those of you who are familiar with our work, a variety of materials to, with the goal, I should say, of getting out this information as effectively as possible. And these are two posters that we put together. Uh, I think Sean and Dara are on, on the line. I saw their, their phone too. Well, thank you um, both because these are materials that they really came up with and, and developed and which we, uh, we all finalized together. But this is, could be used as a poster. It could be used as a handout for a family council, for a uh, for resident council, uh, for an ombudsman to give to residents or families or or for a um, advocates or, or lawyers to give to residents and families to know just some basic information about what the standards of care are, what the problem is, resources for more information. So those are really basic. But we also have fact sheets. Uh, those of you, again, who are familiar with our work, we have a few dozen fact sheets now. This is brand new. Uh, it was Dara's idea to do a fact sheet on pressure ulcers um, because we had not done one before. And this talks about, you can see on the left-hand side, skin integrity. What is a pressure ulcer? What does unavoidable mean? These are exactly the pieces that I was talking about before, earlier in the program. And then on the right-hand side, every fact sheet, I think except for one, is two pages. So you can easily print it out on a single page, front and back, uh, make copies for a resident or family council, make copies for a in-service training that you're doing. And you can see on the right-hand side, it talks about how can pressure ulcers be prevented and treating. Can residents participate in their care planning? Yes, they can. Um, some information about abuse and neglect, because a lot of this comes down to uh, neglect of, of a resident, the um, absence of care, or abuse, essentially conditions of withholding of care, etc., can be a form of abuse as well. And, you know, we encourage people to know what their rights are, to be considering what um, what steps they should take when they're faced with the situation. And that can range. And before we move on, I just want to mention, these fact sheets can be used for your advocacy within a facility. You could bring this to the administrator or to the director of nursing and say, look, these are my rights. How can you help me achieve them? Uh, and that is an important first step, I think. And then after that, if that doesn't work, if you don't get headway, you can then, you know, Maybe talk to the resident or family council. Join the resident or family council if you're in the facility. Uh, if you're an ombudsman, you know, we strongly urge ombudsmen to help resident and family councils. You can use this to educate them. Uh, we strongly support ombudsmen helping resident and family councils to um, 
be educated, to meet, to uh, be as effective as possible. It makes a big difference in the lives of all residents in the facility. We also have some longer materials um, for certain select issues, including infection control and prevention. So this is, you can see it's five pages long. I just included the um, uh, mostly you know, the bigger picture of the first page and just the small picture of the um, second through uh, fifth pages, excuse me, so you can see what they are. This is also is available on our website in the Learning Center where you'll find all of these materials. Everything is free to use, to adapt, to print out, to share, etc., uh, to share electronically. Uh, but we put together some longer materials that can be used in a training. They can be used to educate yourself. They provide and the infection, excuse me, the issue alerts provide some examples of what it may look like, what you might be seeing with that specific issue, et cetera. And then again, you know, as I mentioned a couple of times before, there's no need to remember everything. You know, I don't want people to feel overwhelmed. Uh, nursing home care, caring for a loved one, uh, advocating for people in nursing homes can be uh, overwhelming. It can feel like a lot. But everything that you do, I, you know, everything you do as a family member, everything you do as an advocate, Everything that you do as an optimist, uh, if you're an attorney, if you are someone who's working for a state agency, knowing that the, this information is out there, knowing that there are residents' rights, I think is um, really essential. Knowing that we expect facilities to, to be meeting a professional standard of care gives all of us, I think, the foothold to start, you know, doing, well, you know, if I know that there's something going on with her, if someone developed a pressure ulcer, um, what can I do? Well, you can, again, go to our website and you can search for the materials that are available. They're, all, again, all free. Uh, we don't get paid. It doesn't make any difference to me personally whether someone takes them or not or reuses them other than that we want people to have these tools, people to have access to the knowledge so that they could use it to get better care for themselves and for their residents. So just a, a couple of brief examples, and then I'm going to break for Q&A. Um, this is our Family and Amazon Resource Center that we put together. We have uh, links to the fact sheet, uh, links to tell your story, and please, uh, we really encourage you to tell, you, to tell your story because nursing home residents are facing some significant challenges nowadays, and your story can be so useful in our advocacy. And we also have, and this is fairly new, we've been putting together a growing library of forms and tools for resident-centered advocacy. I'm going to talk about two of them now. One is a record-keeping form. So you can actually keep a record of when you have seen an issue. So if you have an issue that you have seen, for instance, if you are a resident or a family member and you have are concerned about a pressure ulcer that you've seen maybe a red spot on your resident's um, leg or her ankle, um, that you can note that. You can note when you spoke to someone what they said was going to happen and then what actually happened. So this could give you a good way of keeping a record, just using that one example of someone who may be suffering from a pressure ulcer or a pressure-related injury. Well, let's catch it. Let's see. What's, what, when did this happen? What did we do? Who did we talk to? What did we expect to occur so that um, you don't have to remember, oh, on May 17th, I spoke to Susan in, um, in social work, and she said, she said that she was going to take my grievance to the administrator or to the director of nursing. But a few weeks later, now my resident has two spots, and they seem to be getting worse, um, and one of them is looking really bad. Um, this gives you an easy way to keep when you have a concern. Again, free to use and to download. We also have both family council meeting agendas and resident council meeting agendas that you can use and you can adapt. And this also, each one of them, they look very similar. This is the one for family councils. You can discuss um, items that you want to identify, issues of concern if you look on the right-hand side. You can discuss or include action items. So issues to raise within a facility, issues to raise outside of the facility, if you want to file a complaint, et cetera. So these are all ways to hopefully 
easily keep track of issues that you are seeing in your nursing home or that your residents are seeing in their nursing home, and that could be helpful for making sure that they are addressed in some way in a expeditious manner. And that was it. So um, that's it for today. I'm going to open it up for Q&A in a moment. Just wanted to give a brief uh, mention of our next program on May 21st. Uh, it's called Where Does the Money Go? Insights and Consumer Perspectives on Nursing Home Profits and Losses. A big thing that we're seeing now, a big push from the industry and from the industry trade associations, their lobbyists, is that they're claiming that they don't get enough money to provide good care. And they say they want more money. Give us more money, uh, more money to hire staff, more money to provide um, more services, et cetera, for the, the basic services that residents need. And, in fact, there is not a lot of accountability when it comes to how the funds given to nursing homes for care are spent. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, some of the underlying factors, some of the facts, uh, so to speak, in terms of where the money goes, uh, profits and losses, etc. So I hope you'll join us on May 21st, and please spread the word about that. Thank you all for joining us today. I know it was a holiday week, so I'm glad that we uh, we got a good group today. Uh, you can join us, LTCCC, to receive alerts about future programs. And for our newsletters, we never sell or share our uh, email list. It's nursing home. 411.org forward slash join. Uh, you can also join us at Facebook, on, on Facebook, excuse me, on Twitter and on the web, nursinghome411.org. And then lastly, as you can see here and in the invites, we also include it. If you're an ombudsman in New York State, you can take a, a short survey and you um, will alert your supervisor that you participated in this program. You can also do that within a week, and we will do it if you take the program or, or attend the program online. We'd be happy to do that if you're an ombudsman um, program leader in another state. We'd be happy to do that for you, too. Just reach out to us, uh, Sarah, S-A-R-A, at ltccc.org. Lastly, if you're a family member in New York State, Please connect with the Alliance of New York Family Councils. It's a wonderful group. I'm very proud to be uh, involved in it and to be invited to come to the meetings. www.anyfc.org, Alliance of New York Family Councils. And we're really trying to strengthen uh, and inform each other about what's going on and strengthen our work. So without further ado, I am going to open it up for questions. I think Sarah has some, oops, sorry for that. I think Sarah said she had some questions, and I'm going to unmute. Actually, Sarah, if you could unmute yourself, that would be great. Sarah? Can you hear me? Richard, can. can you hear me now? Okay. Yes. So the first thing was someone asked that you remind ombudsmen to wash their hands or use hand sanitizer between resident encounters. That's a great idea. So I hope everyone heard that. Uh, you know, of course, you know, hopefully residents are, I mean, excuse me, hopefully ombudsmen are not having a little, a lot of physical contact with residents um, because, you know, as ombudsmen, we're not caregivers. But I think that's really important is to be uh, as conscious of this, you know, use hand sanitizer uh, and or wash your hands. But we want to make sure that we, are um, really careful. As, as I noted before, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who die uh, in nursing homes. And this is true if you're working in an adult home or assisted living as well. You want to do the same thing. You're with a population that is particularly vulnerable to the flu, to other uh, illnesses that are airborne or born or uh, uh, transmitted in other ways. So it's really, uh, it's really, really important. Thank you. Thanks for that reminder. Next, next question, Sarah. The next question is, does the nursing home take isolation precaution direction from health departments when it's something airborne, or should they already have something in place? They should have something in place. So, you know, every, every nursing home is a uh, professional skilled nursing facility, and that's literally what we call them um, when they're licensed. It's a skilled nursing facility, and they are required, as I mentioned before, 
uh, and those regulations. And this, this program is on, is available on our website now, so you can download it if that's at all helpful, print out that slide. But every nursing home should have a, is required to have, excuse me, a, a plan in place. Uh, it's not like it's a hotel that all of a sudden something bad happened and then the health department comes in. This is something that we can anticipate with a, you know, a highly vulnerable population living in a congregate setting with visitors and other people coming in. Next question, Sarah, please. The last question that's been written in is, is there an oversight organization that is looking at the ownership of facilities across the state or nation and the infection rates across all the, facility, all the facilities operated by a single corporation? Tracking and trending that information may be enough to identify organizations that have the highest rates. Financial penalties should be assessed and collected. Our DOH is simply not being effective enough to affect a change or improvement. Well, that's a great question and, and a great comment. Uh, we are actually, we're not an oversight agency, of course, but we are looking right now at, uh, at ownership in our state, home state of New York. Let me say that the there's not a lot of good information on nursing home ownership, and it really varies by state. So we and other advocates advocated in 2009-2010 for inclusion in the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, um, that of the nursing home transparency um, bill, and that included that nursing homes had to report to the government anyone who has an ownership of 5% or more interest in a facility. So if you are, for those of you who might be interested in who owns your facility, you can go to Nursing Home Compare, the Medicare.gov forward slash Nursing Home Compare, or just do a Google search for Nursing Home Compare Medicare. And every licensed nursing home, uh, when you look it up, you can actually click on uh, ownership information and find out the ownership information there. Uh, however, you know, some facilities um, are listed under a corporate ownership, so they might all have like Centers Healthcare um, or um, Absolute Nursing Homes in New York or Pruitt Health down in the um, in the southeast of the country, or you know, different, different uh, Genesis, et cetera. There are different um, there are different large ownership chains around the country, and a lot of smaller chains. Uh, but also, and this makes it more complicated, is that some of those larger chains don't operate under a corporate name. So that makes it very difficult to track. We, again, join you know, with other advocates, have called on CMS to even do a better job. You know, so they published that information now uh, as of 2010 from the Affordable Care Act on anyone who owns 5% or more but we have, you know, advocated for several years on this very issue is that you're going after owners who, from facility to facility, have a, um, a history of low staffing, for instance, or poor care to, to try to, you know, crack down on that and stop facilities from flourishing. I mean, ownership is becoming a more and more significant issue. And we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, in our May program as well because it leads directly to where's the money going. Um, a lot of these owners are, you know, pulling money out. They're able to do that in different ways, and that's a cause of serious concern. And one reason why we're working on this both in our advocacy work and our research work and as well as in our education educational programs is because I am personally concerned that the nursing home industry has become much more sophisticated in respect to how it's operating. Just, you know, in some of the ways that this person asked the question, some of the, some of the issues that that person raised, and that we, as a society, government, is not keeping up, whether it's not interested in keeping up, not willing to keep up, or whether it just can't keep up because the uh, companies have become much more sophisticated about how they own the nursing homes and how they own who's providing services, um, you know, the different companies and entities, et cetera. So I don't have a really good answer for that other than that there is unfortunately no good answer, but it's something that we are very concerned about, something which I would say should be on 
you know, everyone's radar, especially if you're doing more systemic advocacy in a community, state, or or national level, and it's something that we will um, continue to try to plug in on. Is that the last question, Sarah? That was the last question that was written in. Okay, I'm going to unmute everyone. Two or three, so I know we've run a little bit after, a little bit longer than usual, but uh, I've unmuted the line. Are there any other questions? Someone, anyone did not write in? Um, okay, if you have any comments, very interested in hearing from them, please email info, I-N-F-O, at ltcc.org. Larry, Thomas, Carol, 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 dot O-R-G. Uh, if you have any, any interest in the future program, specific topics that we should cover, um, please let us know. And thank you all for attending. I hope those of you who are celebrating a holiday this week, uh, I hope that you enjoy, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Thank you, Richard. Oh, hi, Gilbert. Thank you.